Welcome to the Vanessa Landino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Friends, I want to start again by thanking you. Um, I am so overcome with gratitude for your listening, for your words. I have received voice messages, emails, texts. Um, You're sending me direct messages on Instagram, on Facebook. I read every single one. And you're leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is awesome. And I'm blown away. Thank you for listening. And also, thank you for taking care of yourselves by engaging this content. I know that facing ourselves isn't easy. And every time we do it, we become more authentic and we grow in our integrity. And as we grow in authenticity and integrity... We become more connected to ourselves, our true selves, and this moves us toward mental health. It moves us toward greater emotional health. You know, just as a runner gets faster, the more they run, and a weightlifter gets stronger as they lift heavier weight, we get healthier when we face ourselves with honesty, with the intention to be who we are. And whether we like what we're seeing or not, we're owning it. And that feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to be transparent. It feels good to come clean. Even though it's scary, it's worth it. Living a life where you can be transparent and congruent with who you really are is the stuff of mental health. So thank you for listening. But even more, thank you for doing your work. I do feel your ripple effect. I'm proud. I'm humbled to be part of your day in this podcast. And I am so incredibly blessed that you're part of mine by tuning in each and every week. So thank you for listening. Now, I want to check in. I want to check in emotionally. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm assuming that some of you who listen to this podcast see a therapist. And maybe some of you don't, and that's totally okay. I have said for years, and I truly believe that therapy is one tool, one of many, that can help us grow and live lives and construct lives that we really love. And there are truly many ways we can know and encounter ourselves and develop intimacy within ourselves and with others. Therapy is a good place to do that, but it's not the only place. You know, the practice of psychotherapy is relatively new, when you're considering the history of humankind and the history of the world. So for millennia, human beings have been seeking themselves and seeking truth and seeking better relationships. Therapy is kind of new on the scene. So there are many ways to do this. But whatever your way is, okay, if it's a therapy office, if it is the woods, if it's your home, if it's a church, if it's your favorite coffee shop, if it's an open journal, What I hope is that you have a place where you stop, where you just stop and breathe and you feel safe to ask yourself, how am I doing? To stop editing and start talking freely. To stop feeling like you have to battle your demons alone and maybe feel the warmth of another human being's compassion. A place where you can hear your own voice and learn to trust it. You know, someone once asked me about my therapeutic practice, my style in the therapy room. And I remember what I said because my passion sort of surprised me. I said, I am skillfully and fiercely on their side. Friends, we all need that. We need to be fiercely on our own side. Not in self-protection, but in self-love. 
We need people who are fierce about us, who will fight for us, even if that means fighting us. People whose energy we can feel. They care about us and it comes out of their pores, you know? Because life is hard. It's hard. The first line of The Road Less Traveled, which is one of the best books on mental health ever written still to this day, the first line of that book is famous, and it is, life is difficult. And that brings me to today's topic, okay? This is a long intro, longer than usual, I know that, but this topic deserves some real thoughtful attention. So I've titled this week's episode, The Nearly Impossible Task of Being a Human Being. And I'm going to divide this into two sections, okay? Growing up and growing down. All right, let's dive in. Let's start with growing up. Here's the story of us, okay? We're born. We're starting at the beginning. We're born, all right? We have no control over this in any kind of a conscious sense when we're born. So some of us may believe that we choose to be born, we choose our parents in sort of a forelife as opposed to an afterlife. For today's podcast, I'm going to leave those suppositions out of the discussion, okay? For all intents and purposes, right now, in this moment, we're going to say this. We're born and we don't choose it. Now, we are born to parents who may or may not be emotionally, mentally healthy people, okay? Our parents, whoever they are, loving or unloving, healing, broken, aware of that, not aware of that, upholding others, harming others, whoever they were, they raise us. And they raise us with the same rules for life that they learned in their childhood. Now, if those rules were developed out of trauma... Not only is the trauma passed down, and this is the way it goes, folks, most of the time children suffer the same abuse as their parents suffered. It may take a different form, but the trauma is passed down if it's not transformed. So not only is the trauma passed down, but the survival traits are passed down too. So, for example, we don't have a lot of definitive science that proves that alcoholism is inheritable. But we do know that the coping behaviors of parents become the coping behaviors of children because children see the coping behavior modeled and children do what they see. That's one of the most fast and impressionable styles of learning. It's called modeling, right? So children who see alcoholism used as a coping mechanism will employ it as adults. Children who grow up to be adults who struggle with alcohol addiction most often have parents who struggled with alcohol addiction themselves. Another example, maybe another family system. Maybe there's a pattern of narcissism. So when they were children, parents escaped the pain and the shame of their childhood by imagining a world of beauty, right? That's at the root of narcissism. They can't face the reality of the wound. They can't face the reality of the ugliness of life. So they force goodness and beauty into their world for fear of the darkness. And anyone who threatens that perfect world becomes an enemy. Now, this way of surviving, forcing beauty, forcing goodness, albeit kind of fake goodness, this is passed down. So these adults raise children who can't settle for being anything other than perfect, or they can't face their own darkness, their own shadow. Now, this lack of shadow work which is the work of understanding and integrating our weaknesses, our aggression, the parts of us that didn't get the love we needed, 
Those coping behaviors are what we call collectively the shadow. When we do shadow work, we become aware of that and we integrate it into our consciousness. If we have not done that, if there's a pattern of narcissism in a family, we create more perfectionism, which simply multiplies the shame and it's all passed down. Now, on the bright side, maybe a focus on athleticism is passed down. That's healthy. Maybe musical talents, self-discipline, these things are passed down. Maybe faith is passed down. Nothing wrong with any of that, right? But the point is, whatever our parents were or are, good or bad, healthy and unhealthy, it all got passed down. And it lands right in our lap and we have no control over any of it. Now we have to grow up. So we somehow have to utilize what we're learning at home and start applying those lessons, that knowledge, healthy or unhealthy, in the outside world. We're adapting rules and expectations from one very specific environment, meaning our home, to a more general environment. And that could be functioning in school or social groups. But somehow we have to take that knowledge learned at home and start applying it to the outside world. Now, if our home life prepared us really well, with time-worn, you know, trustworthy lessons in life, in character, in relationship, we will generally have an easier time adjusting to school and social environments. That just makes sense, right? If our home life was very specific or required specific coping skills, either for the dysfunction inside it or just the culture inside it, we will probably have a more difficult time adjusting. Why? Because everything we learned about how to relate and function only works in that very narrow system. It's not very normal. It's not very general. In other words, it's not normalized, right? So for example, children of immigrants often deal with this. They can have a challenging time adjusting to American mainstream life, whether that's school, social groups, whatever it might be, because the language and the cultural norms in the home don't translate easily to the outside world. If a family is deeply dysfunctional, the coping behaviors will be very specific to that environment, and they don't translate easily to the outside world. And what does that create in children? Anxiety. You know, it's sort of this internal question. Why does this work here but not here? Kids don't understand why. Then we have to face puberty. Let's keep going right along through the lifespan. We have to face puberty. Our bodies start to change in totally normal, natural ways, but those changes begin to highlight an extremely vulnerable part of us, and that is our sexuality. Now, the purest part of us, the healthiest part of us, instinctively wants to embrace our sexuality because it's organic. It's part of who we are. And yet, the culture doesn't always smooth out this transition, does it? In the church, we might experience lots and lots of shame about our sexuality. Um, We may be met with an onslaught of images in adult media that delineate how we're supposed to look or how we're supposed to act in our sexuality. Now, burgeoning sexuality changes how we socialize. Here's another transition. We go from friendships now to flirting. We go from feeling safe in our childlike innocence to feeling examined. We may feel compared to others, often around characteristics over which, again, we have no control, like our height, our body type, our eye color, our breast size. These sexualized parts of us now become a realm of competition. Welcome to adolescence. 
Now sexualized attention becomes a factor we have to integrate and deal with. We need to figure out a way to get attention or avoid it. Now, if we receive approval or praise or admiration when we get attention, we become hungry for it. And if we receive disapproval or even disgrace when we're the object of others' attention, we will avoid attention like the plague. So life is now a process of showboating or hiding or both. And again, we have the lessons learned in early childhood to guide us. That's what's driving us forward. That's all the information we have. Now we get deep into adolescence. And this is fascinating. This is a time in which our brain is not fully developed, yet we are responsible to do some of the most important and challenging scholastic work we will ever do. Okay, the brain is not fully developed, but we become capable of conceiving and bearing children. Amazing. We are navigating attraction and a surge of hormones that give us a one-track mind while we are expected to start working and get deeper into schooling. The brain is half-baked at this point, and I'm sorry if there are teenagers listening to this, and there are. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? This is neuroscience. If you are a teenager, your brain is not quite developed, all right? It's half-baked. But we've got to navigate yet another challenge, an increased desire for freedom and independence. Only we're still dependent on our parents, who are either supporting this independence or they're stifling it. So that's a challenge. Now, some of our parents gave us good boundaries, and we learned to stand on our own. Okay, we were held accountable. There were consequences. We learned healthy independence from our actions and the connection to our consequences. Some of our parents were too strict and restricting. So perhaps we enter adulthood or older adolescence, and we're really, really struggling with self-doubt. Okay, maybe we rebelled because there was too much pressure, too much oppressive, rigid structure. That's the root of rebellion. But this need for independence in a state of dependence can create some tension. Welcome to adolescence, right? It can create anger. We still need food, shelter, clothing, protection. So as an adolescent, we live in this in-between space. We're in between childhood and adulthood. We're in between innocence and fully developed sexuality. We're in between dependence and independence while our bodies change and our brain is (laughs) half-baked. And all we have are early childhood lessons and imprints in relationship to guide us. Now, early adulthood means we have to make some decisions about schooling, career paths, and relationships. The benefit is at this point we have a fully formed brain. But our relationships are somewhere between adolescence and adulthood, and at that time, they start to shift from just meeting our social needs to now meeting emotional needs. This is the development of what we call a support system. This is the time when it really takes root. Our friends aren't just for good times anymore. They're not just for sleepovers and movies and fun nights and pool time. Right? They're the voices on the other side of the 3 a.m. phone call. Now, if our family fills this role of a support system, we lean on them. But this is the time in life when we start choosing our family. There's two families that everybody has in life. There's the family you're born into and the family you choose. This is about the age when we start choosing family. 
Our family of origin is never meant to completely meet our social and emotional needs throughout our entire lifespan, nor can they. That is wholly unrealistic and kind of a pipe dream. And that sort of thinking usually originates from highly fearful, controlling home environments. Okay, these are family systems that will say, you know, your family's all you got. Don't trust anyone outside the family. But the truth is, in healthy family systems, the system itself is strong enough to support and hold newcomers without the unity being threatened. The purpose of our family of origin is not to meet every need throughout our life, but to prepare us for life and provide the support and instruction we need in our formative years, namely childhood, pre-adolescence, adolescence, and early adulthood. By the time we reach full adulthood, mid-20s, late-20s, we're developing outside relationships that are meeting the needs our family of origin never could, and that is normal and appropriate. This is the growth of the human being. Now, if we had unhealthy or strained attachments as children with our siblings, with our parents, caregivers, we may form unhealthy, codependent, or stressful adult relationships. Same thing is true if we had healthy attachments as children. We generally form healthy adult attachments as adults. And all of this ripples out from those early childhood experiences, relationships, and lessons over which we had no control. Are you starting to follow my drift here? Life is an ordeal. And so much of it, so much of what determines our path, determines our trajectory, and determines the skill level we have to create our own happiness is out of our control. It's already an ordeal so far, and I haven't even reached the age of marriage, children, career, grandparent years. I mean, we're, we're one third in of the average adult's lifespan, and so much is determined on factors that are out of our control. When I meet a client for the first time, we generally go through their paperwork and we talk about what they want to get out of counseling. I like to ask them many questions, but one of them is this. If this works the way you want it to work, how will your life look different? If therapy really works for you, what will be different? What changes will you see? This gives us a goal. And here's a very interesting piece. I've never heard a client come in, never, with an unhealthy goal. Never. In over a decade of clinical practice, I've never seen a client come in with an unhealthy goal. As soon as we're on the same page, my client and I, and that means I'm on their page, okay, whatever their goal is, I'm working toward with them. Whatever they want to accomplish, we get to work on their history. So I will go through all of the stages of their life, ask them lots and lots of questions and learn about their relationships with their mom, with their dad, if they had a mom and a dad. Um, their schooling, their relationships with siblings, if they had siblings, teachers, important people at every stage. And I'll ask them, what was your relationship with your mom like when you were little? Did that change as you got older? Okay. We talk about memorable events, positive and negative. We talk through traumatic memories. Okay. This is the history of a client. Now, it could take years to fully engage a client's history. I try to do it in one to two clinical hours for the sake of time and money. Okay. I'm always, always blown away by the resilience of my clients. No one, not one person has escaped life without struggle, without heartbreak, without a loss of innocence. Let's talk about that. 
The word innocent today means free from guilt. But that is not the origin of the word innocent. The origin of the word innocent is Latin, and it is innocentem. Innocentem. And it means free from harm. So we've come to use the phrase lost innocence to refer to our first sexual experience. And there's some truth in that. I get it. You get it. We're used to that usage. But the real loss of innocence in our lives is the moment we were harmed. What do I mean by harmed? It's the moment we realized the world wasn't safe. I'm going to say that again. It's so important. A loss of innocence occurs the moment you realized you weren't safe. For some of us, that was well into adolescence or even early adulthood. That means you had a very lovely childhood. That can create some naivete. I'll get back to that later. For some of us, this happened far too early. At the hands of unwell parents or simply a broken world, disease can do this. Abuse can do this. Hardship Neglect can do this. Abandonment can do this. Remember we talked last week, abandonment is not about leaving left alone in a house to fend for yourself. That certainly is abandonment, but that's not the only type. Abandonment is any time a parent turns away from a child in emotional withdrawal. And emotional abandonment, frankly, can do a lot more harm than any other type of abuse. A lack of empathy from parents can do this kind of harm. Consciously or unconsciously, it's the moment we stop trusting and we start self-protecting. Ask yourself when this was for you, because whenever it was, that's the moment the survival behaviors and the coping mechanisms started. That's the moment that the child inside you, the innocent child, meaning unharmed, was lost. Not lost forever, We're going to talk a lot about that concept today, that child inside. It's not lost forever, but it's lost in your conscious functioning. We lose our spontaneity. We actually lose our authenticity. We lose a sense of freedom and lightness and peace in the world. And the survivor in us, the survivor self, takes over from there. For many of us, this was a shift from freedom to duty For some of us, we lost our creativity. We lost spontaneity. We went from the spontaneous play of children to the well-thought-out preparation of adults. (laughs) Now, hear me out. Those are not bad qualities, right? These are qualities associated with adulthood. None of those qualities are wrong or unhealthy. It's not unhealthy to have a sense of duty. It's not unhealthy to be responsible and well-thought-out and prepared. But what is unhealthy and heartbreaking is that we lost the child within us. They stopped being part of how we function. All right. This is growing up. Let's switch our focus to the second part, growing down. Now, what do you mean by growing down, Vanessa? What does that phrase mean? I mean this. Slowing down, digging deep, and finding the ground underneath us again. All of this is a downward grounding movement. Throughout childhood, we spent our time growing up. Okay, we were growing taller, staying up too late, catching up to everyone else and getting ahead. The movement is forward. The movement is higher. But at some point, 
When maturity catches up with us, when life's lessons start to sink in, when our brokenness, the places in us that were wounded, when those places become something we would rather explore than something we hide and deny, energy shifts direction. It goes from forward to downward, not backward, downward. We want something deeper, not something more. We're looking for something within us, not something else. Now how? How do we do this? How do we heal what was harmed, namely our innocence, our ability to trust? Can we ever return to innocence again, to freedom, to purity? How do we rediscover that child and bring that human being, that precious child, back into our minds, our hearts, even our lives, how we're living consciously? Some of you have heard of inner child work. Some of you have done it in therapy, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So let me stop and give you some background, okay? The term inner child most likely originated with a psychoanalyst, um, and psychoanalysis was the precursor to psychotherapy. He was a psychoanalyst. I'm not going to get into that today because it's too much. But his name was Carl Jung, and some of you have heard of Jung. He coined the use of the word archetype in therapy. Now, a little background on archetypes. Stay with me. Okay, this is all going to make sense in a minute. Archetypes in Jungian psychology are universal expressions of humanity, and they're expressed through characters or kind of the idea of a universal person. We have archetypes today in our society. We'll say things like, oh, he's a real go-getter. She's the class clown. That's a perfect example of an archetype. In Jungian psychology, he believed that everyone had every universal archetype within them. Some were expressed more strongly, some less strongly, and that was most likely due to the environment in which we were raised. So the Jungian archetypes include, and these are going to sound very familiar, the father, okay, the authority figure, stern, powerful, the mother, nurturing, comforting, guiding, the sage, the old wise person, They give guidance, they give knowledge, they give wisdom. The hero, uh, this is the champion, the defender, the rescuer. The maiden, the maiden is described as having innocence and desire and purity. Then there's the trickster, who's the, the deceiver, the liar, the troublemaker. And once you know what the Jungian archetypes are and you watch movies, you start to see how characters in movies usually embody these archetypes. Okay, That's why we identify with them, because we have all of these types within us. There's another archetype. That archetype is called the divine child. And this archetype is described as longing for innocence and rebirth. So this is where the idea started. It started as an understanding that we express ourselves and we have robust, multifaceted personalities. They come out in many ways. With some people, I'm more of a mother. With some people, I'm more of a sage. With some people, I'm more of a hero. With some people, I'm more of a maiden. With some people, I'm more of a trickster. These are just words that were given to give expression to how we show up in our lives in different ways. Okay? Many different types of persons, you might say. The child, the divine child, is one of these expressions. You still with me? Okay, good. Now, As that idea wore on through many years of analysis and psychotherapy, maybe a hundred years or so, the definition changed, but only slightly. 
it became more of a figurative term used to refer to that part of us, each one of us, that is still childlike. This could mean the part of us that is still innocent, the part of us that's still trusting, part of us that's still, you know, is unwounded, unharmed, that sort of sees the world with very trusting eyes. It could be the part of us that's still playful, still creative, still emotional. Um, it could be the part of us that's unguarded. But it's definitely the part of us that's childlike. Now, it could also refer to the part of us that was wounded or traumatized. Another way to say it is it's the pure person without the coping mechanisms. I'm going to repeat that because it's crucial that we understand this if we're going to live full lives. The inner child in each one of us is the being we were and still are who feels and reacts and engages and trusts without the coping mechanisms and self-protective behaviors layered on top. The inner child is the person underneath. So when we talk about returning to the child inside of us or discovering our inner child, what we mean is we're discovering and reconnecting with the most honest part of us. Now, what does that mean practically? In therapy, it might mean that we need to return to some memories from childhood and set the record straight, so to speak. Uh, If we were wounded or harmed, we go back to those memories. We go into the memories. We talk about what happened. We discuss what harmed us about it. We give language to that. Finally, we speak it. We talk about the need for protection and how we really felt in the moment of harm. We might talk about what behaviors we used to survive. And this is most important. We give ourselves a moment to express the emotion we were feeling from the harm. No survival behaviors, no coping mechanisms, pure emotion. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, and I get it if you are, what in the world does this do, Vanessa, and why would I do this? This sounds time-consuming and excruciating. My friends, it gives us our hearts back. What we buried were our feelings. Not many people realize this, but some people understand psychotherapy. Some theorists, some very famous psychotherapists and psychologists believe therapy to be nothing more than helping people feel their emotions again. Those emotions we felt as children, whether they were heard or unheard by us or anyone around us, those are the natural responses, our natural reactions to the environment untainted, undiluted by coping mechanisms and a need to self-protect. These are the real ways we responded to love and a lack of love. This is the real person inside of us. Now, as adults, we can pretend we don't care. We get busy with work to avoid pain. We think if we can succeed enough, we can blot out the past Or we maintain rigid control over everything in our lives because if we loosen our grip, we're going to be hurt. We try to save the world because we couldn't save ourselves. Maybe we turn our attention to the needs of others and ignore our own pain. Maybe we seek beauty. We seek escape. Maybe we rationalize everything that happened to us and has happened to us since. And this may be the most destructive. We view our pasts 
as little innocent children through the lens of adulthood, and we say that it doesn't matter, what happened doesn't matter, because it's in the past. It happened so long ago. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this in therapy. What is the point of processing this? I can't undo it. I remember a time in my own therapy years ago, and I was processing a real wound I had from my childhood. And my therapist looked at me and said, Vanessa, what did your heart want to hear? And I said, what difference does it make? It didn't hear that. And he said, the difference it makes is that your heart needs to hear it now. You need to hear yourself say it. Guys, I'm going to be Jersey Blunt here with you, all right? All right? You're forcing me to get Jersey Blunt. (laughs) There is no statute of limitations on harm. Your emotions don't start mattering at a certain age. Now, this happens all the time in therapy. I'll be processing a trauma with a client, and maybe they were 12 years old when it happened, okay? At the time of the trauma, at the time of the wound, and they will start minimizing it. Okay, this is so common. I've done it. You've done it. We all do it. We don't want to face this stuff. It's hard. But we minimize it. How? Oh, it doesn't matter. It was so long ago. I mean, I was just a little kid. Classic defense mechanism. I'm protecting myself from feeling the pain by distancing myself from it. In this case, I distance myself by sticking it way in the past. Oh, it doesn't matter. Happened too long ago, right? And this is how I respond. I'll say, okay, so you were 12? Yeah, I was 12 years old. And it doesn't matter anymore because it happened so so long ago? I mean, really, why, why, why go into it, Vanessa? It happened so long ago. What's the point? Okay, well, what grade are you in when you're 12 years old? Mm, maybe seventh grade. Yeah, okay, I'll go with it. 12 years old, you're in seventh grade. Can you imagine if I walk into a class of seventh graders and say, hey, kids, I just want you all to know that your emotions don't matter and nothing that happens in this, your 12th year, good or bad, none of it matters. Thanks. Bye. It's absurd. And my clients usually laugh when I do this because they get the point. Emotions matter now, and your emotions mattered when you were 12. They don't start mattering at a certain age. They either always matter or they never matter. And that can't be true. So they always matter. When we say that something doesn't matter because it happened in the past, what we're basically saying is it didn't matter because we were young. Actually, I could make the case that it matters more if it happened in the past because you were more impressionable. You were more innocent. You were more capable of being harmed which is, by the way, what the word vulnerable means. It does not mean honest. It means capable of being harmed. Your emotions matter then, and they matter now. And please listen to me here. They matter because you're a human being. You have always mattered, and you will always matter. By the time we reach adulthood, we can be hardened. We can be emotionally deaf. We can't hear our emotions anymore. We stopped listening to them a long time ago because it was too painful. But when we allow the inner child, the child inside of us who was in those situations, who had a pure, unguarded response, when we allow that child inside us, their voice again, we come alive again. Why? Because we can feel again. This is what it means to grow down. It means to get down into our hearts and let ourselves actually feel again. And this connects us to our present lives in a new and an old way. It's new because we're now alive as adults in a way we weren't before. And it's old because this used to be us. 
We didn't have to try back then to feel, to be present. No one has to teach a two-year-old or a three-year-old how to feel their feelings. It's innate. What a two and a three and a four-year-old needs to learn how to do is feel their feeling, name it, and express it appropriately starting about that age. But they don't need to learn how to shut it down. And yet this is what so many of us did. Now, to feel our feelings, it takes work. And this is the work of healing. And this is the work of being a human being. So this brings me to the title of today's podcast, The Nearly Impossible Job of Being a Human Being. What do I mean? Well, the job is not easy, that's for sure. Okay, we talked about growing up. How much is put on us? How much of that is out of our control? If it's healthy, great. If it's not, sorry, you're up the creek, right? So we have to grow up. And we have to learn a lot in order to do that. And then we reach adulthood and we have to start to piece together what we got and didn't get for life ahead. And we have to learn some things, things we didn't get growing up. And we also have to unlearn some things that aren't serving us anymore. And that's harder in adulthood because we have responsibilities. And a lot of these behaviors are now patterns. They're habits. They're already in place. So we have to do the work of becoming conscious of them. And then... We have to recapture the child. We have to go back. Yes, we do. We have to do this in order to live fully. We have to go back and remember who we were. Sometimes we have to relive it. That could be through telling the story. It could be through a therapy session, through therapeutic work. But we have to relive it. You know, I had a house that I grew up in in New Jersey, and I loved that house. And that room, my bedroom in that house, meant a lot to me. And when I became an adult, I wrote the owner of that house a letter. And I said, hey, I grew up in this house. And a lot of good happened in that house, and a lot of harm happened in that house. And I said, I sent her the song by Miranda Lambert, The House That Built Me. This was back in the days of burning things onto a CD. So I burnt it onto a CD, and I put it in the mail with this letter, and I sent it to my old address. And I said, is there any way I could come back and see the house? I just need to walk through it. And she wrote me back and said, of course you can come back, Vanessa. Your home is always open to you. So I did. I flew up to New Jersey, and I rented a car, and I walked through that house, and I made peace with everything that happened in that house. That is a rather laborious and expensive way to revisit childhood, but that's what I needed to do. Ask yourself what you do. Ask yourself what you need to do to relive and go back and allow the wounded places to finally be heard and allow the wounded places to finally heal. And somehow, somehow, I'm pleading with you, we have to learn to stop judging them. We have to start trusting that if we remember it, it's important. We have to start valuing the voice of the child within us, which is expressing itself through our memory. That is the voice of the child. And that voice is pushing really hard up against the adult us. The cynical, hardened adult who says, this is stupid. This is dumb. I feel like an idiot. This is silly. It doesn't matter anymore. It happened so long ago. No, we gently stay the course and we grow wiser. Wisdom isn't just the work of adulthood and it's not just the work of adults. Wisdom is the synthesis 
of years of experience with the reclaimed innocence of childhood. Should I repeat that? I'm going to say it again. Wisdom is the synthesis of years of experience, lived experience with the reclaimed innocence of childhood. Experience without innocence leaves us jaded, hardened, cynical. We can be fearful and suspicious. But innocence without experience leaves us too naive, too trusting, too vulnerable to getting hurt. We need both. So this balance between learned experience and reclaimed innocence, this, my friends, it's nearly impossible, is it not? So how do we do it? This is the nearly impossible job of being a human being. How do we do it? We trust what comes up inside of us. I want you to ask yourself when you're done listening to this podcast, what came up? What memories, what thoughts, what feelings, what phrase stood out to you? What's staying with you? Whatever it is, I want you to trust it. It's exactly where you need to be. Now, I know, like I know my name, that I will close my eyes on this earth, having done some, hopefully a lot, but not all of my work. I'm not going to be a fully self-actualized human being when I die. I don't have that expectation. And I am okay with that. Let's all be okay with where we are. And that okayness with who we are and where we are, this is what makes the job of being human worth taking on. Because no matter how it's going, you're okay. Just do today. Do your best today. Breathe. Take a breath. Feel what you feel today and trust. Trust again, like a child, that you're in good hands. Start to trust again, like a child, that what's coming up inside you is okay. Let's stop judging it, and let's start trusting that that is the path. My friends, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. This week, don't worry too much about doing that right. Be like a child, color outside the lines, run through the rain, and try to believe that loving yourself doesn't have to be that hard. Thank you so much for tuning in. For those of you who are tuning in each and every week, I'm sending you a big thank you, huge thank you. Um, Your reviews on Apple Podcasts are awesome, and if I could, please keep them coming in. It's so good for the podcast to get positive reviews. If you're sharing this podcast with people in your life, I'm thanking you for that. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. You belong here. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino podcast.